So in doing these interviews as I have for the past two to three years, one of the greatest pleasures is running into voices and perspectives that I hadn't encountered before and leave me really deeply and profoundly changed after. This interview is one of those conversations. It's with Navia Gill, an assistant professor at William Patterson University in New Jersey. And our conversation today is on the farmers' protests currently happening in India. Uh, these are protests that I've been fascinated about, and Navyag has written beautifully about why these protests are so profoundly important, both for India and globally, uh, in outlets such as Outlook Magazine and Al Jazeera. Our conversation will look at the scope and scale of these protests, why uh, Narendra Modi's BJP party has been unable to co-opt or suppress them, and how these protests can offer lessons for global movements also fighting against fascist or near-fascist governments in Macron's France, Trump's America, Morrison's Australia, Erdogan's Turkey, Xi's China, and elsewhere. We'll look at why these protests have been so difficult for the government to stop, and hopefully these conversations and topics that I discuss with Nabyuk will offer inspiration for others in struggle elsewhere. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. We have a host of interviews on a variety of subjects in India. And you can go to our website, asiaarttours.com. We also have numerous print interviews on India, as well as other areas of the world. Here's my conversation now with Professor Navya Gill on the farmers' protests in India. I hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Navyuk Gill. I am a scholar of modern South Asia and global capitalism. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of History at William Patterson University. So what we're going to be talking about today is the farmer's strike. Personally, uh, for me, and this this is taking place in India, but it's something that I, I really wanted to do this because how I've seen it sort of bandied about outside of a few select articles, yours included in uh, outlets like Al Jazeera, some other articles I've seen in The Guardian, is it's just sort of a meme. And I have really not liked that, you know, just, oh, 250,000 people. And uh, I want to put some meat on the bones of, of what's actually going on. So before we get into the demands of the activists and, and sort of what's driving this direct action, could you actually help us accurately picture the scope and the scale? And then beyond that, uh, what are the demographics of these protesters? Right now, uh, there's something like 300,000 people um, camped on the outskirts of New Delhi, the capital city of India. Um, and they've been there uh, for uh, almost a month now, protesting the government's uh, passing of three uh, agricultural bills into law in September. Um, the people there, uh, the movement that is that, that, that this protest uh, represents uh, was led by SEC um, from the state of Punjab. Um, it has uh, been joined by uh, groups in uh, Haryana and Rajasthan and Western Uttar Pradesh and across the country. Um, the people protesting are farmers, laborers, and a whole range of supporters, uh, you know, urban workers, professionals, students, transporters um, across society. Um, and the protest uh, actually began over the summer. Uh, once these bills were announced, uh, the farmer and labor unions did the work of mobilizing people, uh, educating them about the effects of these laws, small rallies, demonstrations, speeches, um, printing up leaflets and circulating them. Um, and from there, it built up into large public demonstrations in September, uh, various public encampments, um, protests in front of uh, politicians' homes. Um, there was an escalation when the bills were actually passed into law. 
um, which led to you know blockading of railway lines, uh, shutting down intersections, um, and that built up uh, over October and then uh, no November when the call was given to march on to Delhi. And that's when you saw a sort of groundswell of support, people coming to the borders of Punjab and Haryana. Um, the police had barricaded those border points and weren't letting protesters pass through. And on November 26th, there was this extraordinary moment where people pushed past these barricades and water cannons and tear gas canisters and marched onto the capital. And they've then set themselves up in these three points on the outside of the city to block traffic um, in, inside. Um, and as I said, it's uh, become a, a, an almost pan-Indian movement. Huge numbers of people across society um, from all sorts of other states have expressed support for uh, the protesters. And that's why um, it's become a, a global issue. In the U.S. and in the U.K. or, or sort of these more international, uh, I hate the term Western, um, but I have to use it just for framing here. Were, were there any things that have, have been picking at you or you think are important to maybe gently criticize about how Western media has covered events like this strike, like the plight of migrants uh, under COVID or like Shaheen Bagh? Um, you know, Western media, you're right to say that it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of broad category and there are differences in the reporting styles of say, uh, Europe uh, and even Canada to America. Um, in America, you know, we have to remember it's a very insular country uh, and, uh, you know, sort of not very curious about the rest of the world. Um, and uh, it's, it's quite, uh, uh, quite pathetic, the kind of coverage you get um, um, of the globe. Um, so it takes a long time for, uh, you know, American uh, media, print media and news channels to sort of pick up on what's happening elsewhere when it rises to the level of importance in their eyes. Um, so that's a kind of ongoing frustration. Um, people have been submitting op-eds and pieces, uh, I know personally, to lots of these newspapers um, and, and getting very little response. Um, now, on top of that, um, what these papers and channels usually have is, is a sort of group of, uh, you know, India whisperers, right? There's this mm -hmm. sort of group of people they usually call on to kind of explain what's happening there. They you know, have the Africa whisperers, the Latin America whisperers, the East Asia whisperers, right? And it's the sort of same old collection of veteran old hand kind of media commentator types who sort of paint the region in broad strokes and try to make it digestible for Western audiences. And they're usually from the region. So it's, it's not like they're sort of outsiders, but the nature of them being insiders is, is part of the problem. Um, so that's been kind of frustrating. Um, on the other side, though, I think uh, what this movement has done is highlight the power of both social media and independent media. And there have been scores of people on the ground uh, doing sort of guerrilla reporting and guerrilla commentating, um, you know, going on, on, on their sort of Facebook, Instagram lives, giving updates, sending pictures. And I think lots of people around the world have learned about it outside of the sort of given news channels in the West. To do an interesting parallel that uh, increasingly for India, a country that has been on the mind of, uh, uh, in terms of geopolitical fracas and struggles is China. Um, China, there's a lot of fascinating uh, coverage of uh, the labor movements within the country and sort of, um, we were talking a little bit about misconceptions in Western media, Quite a few Westerners, I think if they lived in a Shanghai, would quickly disabuse themselves of any notions that Mao's ghost lingers in the country. Um, one of the most valuable um, publications that I've read is not from a New York Times or Guardian. It's from a small labor publication called Chuang. And all they do is document uh, labor struggles. And uh, I'm going to highlight a quote here, and then we're going to discuss it within the context uh, of India. This is from uh, the Chuang Collective in their article called Picking Quarrels. The quote uh, goes as follows. 
within China, many expected a generalization of the turn from defensive to offensive actions in which workers would strike for wage increases beyond existing laws and norms rather than merely reacting when bosses pushed them too far and failed to meet legal standards. And the years that followed, however, these reactive demands for unpaid wages, social insurance, etc., were made dominant in labor struggles. Uh, end quote. This is something I'm always very curious about in terms of getting excited personally about uh, labor struggles, uh, if they are defensive or offensive. So for the farmers' protests, could you discuss with us the concrete demands? And as a scholar of these issues, do you see them as defensive or offensive in what they are demanding from capital and or the state? So I think uh, in terms of concrete demands, the farmer and laborer unions have been uh, adamant that uh, the primary demand is a full repeal of these three laws. Remember that these were laws that were uh, sort of announced in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, none of the farmer or laborer unions were consulted in the drafting of these laws. And then they were pushed through in a special session of parliament in September. So their position is these have to be repealed. Um, there's also demands for waiving a, an electricity bill uh, and also um, uh, removing some of the false cases that uh, farmers have been implicated in for, for stubble burning. Um, so these in that sense um, would be defensive in the sense that they're opposing a kind of action the government is doing. Um, now, one of the most important and largest uh, labor unions has also made the demand for the release of jailed intellectuals and activists that the mm -hmm. BJP government has cracked down on and put people away for. Um, and so they've sort of broadened the, the, the struggle and said that those activists and intellectuals have raised their voice on agrarian issues before, and they've supported minorities and Dalits and Adivasis, and uh, they should not be imprisoned uh, for, for those things. Um, now, I guess what we have is a kind of interplay, I think, between defensive and offensive, um, because the mm -hmm. unions have also shifted to the offense in the sense of directly boycotting the Ambani and Adani uh, corporations and their many subsidiaries. Uh, so they've surrounded and had protests in front of their malls. They've uh, gotten people to uh, remove the SIM cards of GEO which is one of the cell phone providers, they've actually begun a campaign now to um, uh, unplug or disconnect the many cell phone towers that uh, GEO has uh, throughout Punjab. Um, they're blocking and boycotting the uh, patrol pumps. Um, so they're actually engaged in a kind of offense against capital uh, and against these two companies in particular because they're poised to make the most money from these new laws. Um, so I think uh, it's the sort of, it's a, it was a, we might want to say it was a defensive action that when met with the intransigence of the state has also become offensive. Um, and pushing past these bills um, and these companies, you have people now also articulating a different agrarian model for the region. Uh, people have actually been demanding this for decades. But they're saying that it's not now just a matter of repealing these laws and going back to a status quo. What we need is an agrarian policy that fulfills needs, that is sustainable, and protects the environments. So I think, I think this has kind of opened up a whole new terrain of struggle. Whenever we stop and think about the, what we've accepted as normal, I think we immediately uh, recoil in horror. I was just uh, no, uh, taking some notation while you were discussing, and I realized that basically corporations write our laws in the U.S. And I, even as someone who's very seeped in uh, leftism all over the world, I, I've somehow managed to forget and suppress that. And I was sort of horrified um, in one corner of my mind while listening to you give that, that wonderful explanation. Um, question three, I think we'll touch upon this, but I'd like to um, discuss it explicitly with you just as an aside. In terms of these laws, I, I do not uh, uh, really care as much about, you know, the quote-unquote, what they are on the surface, but rather 
what they are underneath. Um, could you discuss a little bit about the the goals of these laws, and then as a uh, a parenthetical to that, when it comes to the lawmaking process uh, within Modi's India or BJP's India, is it similar to this sort of suppressed horror of that I was just voicing in the U.S., where basically corporations are large. Uh, titans of industry, uh, monopolists, are able to just sort of sit in the room with BJP lawmakers and say, we want this, we don't want that, we want this, we don't want that. Could you discuss the laws a little bit and some of these hidden horrors that I've uh, outlined so far? Yeah, um, so the laws, uh, there has been lots written about them. And um, I, I was saying on, on another occasion, you know, if you if you just sort of watch a regular clip or a random clip of somebody um, speaking on, on, on YouTube or WhatsApp, uh, they're actually far more articulate than the sort of news anchors sitting in, you know, some studio in Delhi trying to explain it. People have been made very aware of the situation and can, can speak to it directly. Um, so the three laws, uh, yeah, I mean, what, what they're essentially designed to do is um, deregulate and privatize agricultural procurement and distribution. Um, so currently there's a system of uh, public uh, purchasing and distribution system where the government buys two main crops, rice and wheat at uh, minimum prices from farmers and then uses those crops in uh, distributing it uh, across the country in terms of subsidized food, as well as selling it on the private market to companies who then package it and sell it in stores. Um, what these laws are designed to do is um, create a parallel private system where companies can purchase crops from farmers at market prices uh, outside of the government designated um, purchasing markets called mundis. Um, the fear is that what they will do uh, is a kind of classic bait and switch. Uh, the government will offer a minimum price of, say, 1,800 rupees per quantal of wheat. The private companies might offer 1,900 or 1,950. And farmers will then try to sell to the private companies for one or two or maybe three seasons. Um, and then when the government markets are not getting any farmers to sell to mm -hmm. them, they will quietly sort of close up shop and dissolve themselves. And at that point, these companies will have all the leverage to, you know, drop the price to 1,500 or 500 rupees, and farmers will have no choice whatsoever. Um, the other aspect is that the one of the laws allows private companies to stockpile grain in unlimited quantities. Uh, it removes the kind of essential commodity safeguards that were put in place in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and so they can buy up huge amounts of grain when prices are low, wait for prices to rise, and then make uh, even more profit. Uh, the third provision of these laws is um, to allow companies to engage in contract farming without proper legal recourse. What that means is companies can contract with a farmer to produce a certain amount of crop um, and uh, they can pay a bit of an advance, secure the deal, and then um, six months later when the farmer delivers the crop, the company has all the leverage to renege on the price, to discard a portion of it for being, you know, spurious reasons of, of quality or color, um, and sort of present all sorts of obstacles to the farmer. And the farmer actually has no power to take this to civil court. Instead, it's adjudicated by a district magistrate who's almost always beholden to the company. So really what we have here is not agricultural reforms. That's the kind of misnomer that the government kind of keeps saying that these are reforms. This is nothing more than a kind of corporate handover. Um, and the BJP's alignment with uh, sort of these billionaire companies um, is what sort of pushed these laws together at this time in this way. So these laws, in terms of lawmaking within the BJP's uh supercharged version of wanting to create uh, India as a brand while also sort of doing away with any societal links or the small-scale farming that isn't part of a multi-million, multi-billion dollar brand. Are they sitting in the room essentially and, and picking and choosing? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great point. And there was this very um, fascinating anecdote where uh, during the, one of the negotiations, um, the uh, farmers, you know, were insisted that these laws be repealed. And one of the ministers in the government actually said to the farmers union representatives, okay, you're sitting here now telling us to remove these laws. Even if we agree, tomorrow we are going to have a meeting with the Ambani's and the Adani's and they're going to force us to put them back on. Um, kind of revealing the fact that these laws were kind of made at the behest of these two corporate houses. Now, I actually think that what we have is a kind of an alignment of interests between the BJP and these two companies. It's a kind of mutually sort of satisfying arrangement, but I don't think they're beholden to each other. And what I mean is these two companies are interested in profit, hand over fist profit, right? That is what all companies want. And these two in particular are, 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 are sort of determined uh, to make as much as possible. And they have these vast holdings and everything under the sun, um, you know, they have their, their hands in. Um, mm -hmm. Now they found a vehicle to enact their sort of profit driven mission in the BJP. Um, but they would actually have no problem doing this under the Congress or another political party. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever it sort of takes, they would, they would go with, um, you know, take a look at in the US, if you look at these fortune 500 companies, all of them, donate to both the Republicans and the Democrats, right? Um, now on the BJP angle, it is more pernicious because they uh, have a kind of Hindutva ideology, which is based on, um, you know, the slogan of Hindi, Hindu, Hindustan, which is one language, Hindi, one religion, Hinduism, and one country, Hindustan. Um, but they will add to it one market, uh, which is the kind of neoliberal angle to their Hindutva. And they want to erode regional autonomy and have a more powerful centralized unitary state in New Delhi that erases difference and concentrates power. Um, these companies allow them to do it, um, but they could easily find other billionaire companies and use mm -hmm. them, you know, to, to fund their campaigns. I mean, the Ambani's and Andani's have bankrolled the BJP to this extent that it is now the richest political party in India. Um, so it, what I'm saying is there's a kind of convergence of interests, but um, there could be other arrangements as well between sort of political parties and capital. And, and the last aside, uh, before we get back to the scheduled list, I just had a very depressing interview with someone from Kashmir where I'm going to have to clear it twice because things are so screwed up uh, in Kashmir that, you know, if you give the wrong interview, you say the wrong thing, you might get disappeared. Um, and what a lot of their frustration was not actually with the right in India. And uh, I, this has come up a lot, at least from my perspective in the U.S., where I know what the right wants to do. They want to basically kill everyone who's not white and rich. What this individual said, and I want to apply this to the farmers protest, is just for India's liberals, sort of the, the liberal intelligentsia, so these would be prominent voices in media, academia, um, sort of people who have money, and, and I think Adam Curtis once said the oh dear crowd. You know, they'll, they'll open um, a page, uh, they'll open the caravan the homepage and read about Kashmir and say oh dear. And I'm wondering in uh, Shaheen Bagh, which we'll get to after the next question, where a lot of people there felt abandoned by India's liberals, that they were very much looked down upon as this sort of squalid uh, group of Muslims protesting uh, fruitlessly. How have the farmers been received by India's liberal class, and have we seen wide-scale solidarity um, that has not always been evident with issues specifically related to Muslims in India? Yeah, this is a, another excellent question. Um, it's, it's been on my mind as well because um, I think uh, it is incumbent upon Indian liberals to actually think about their commitments um, and their principles and um, start to do something about it if they really care. Uh, one has nothing to say to the Indian right wing. Um, there, there's no conversation there, but it's, it is actually about these liberals that as you said, they look at something and, and they, they, they clutch at their pearls and then they click away. Um, so I think uh, 
the way it's been received, um, it, there's a there's a kind of narrow spectrum. Um, what you have is uh, initially, I mean, they had nothing to do with it. This was a groundswell of popular opposition. It bypassed all of the sort of conventional media angles, but also it is adamantly against all of the existing political parties in Punjab, the Akali Dal, the Congress, the Amadmi Party, they've all been utterly sidelined. The union leaders don't allow them to speak from the stage. Uh, the flags are not present. They're, they're sort of completely irrelevant. And you hear this in the sort of common person's uh, contempt for the existing political class. Um, and in a sense, that's all liberals really have. I mean, they sort of say, you know, democratic process and elections and, you know, uh, sort of do things in that kind of procedural way. And what this protest has shown is that those methods get us nowhere and people have to get more creative in the way they challenge the state. Um, so liberals, I think their reactions have been kind of um, sort of bemused, concerned, a little skeptical, wary. Um, but then as this struggle has grown, more and more of them have been coming around and sort of drawn into it almost against their will. They, they don't actually have a choice. They, they have to kind of at least pay lip service to what they're witnessing because it is so overwhelming and because the BJP is such a clear threat. Now, how active and direct they are in supporting the protesters and opposing the BJP, this is always kind of mealy-mouthed, right? You get a, a lot of this um, both sides-ism <laughs> and this, this kind of desire for compromise. Um, so they're at best an unreliable ally, but I think that it should be incumbent on them, as I said, to, if they believe in Indian democracy, if they believe in the Indian constitution, to fight for it at a time when it's in such peril. And just to make sure we're not essentializing India, Macron has unleashed policies that I would call fascist uh, in relation to France's Muslim communities. Biden uh, in the United States has walked back everything we knew was utter politicking out of his mouth uh, in terms of undoing Trump's ethno-nationalist uh, policies on immigration and migrants in the United States. So I think this is a global problem in terms of the contradictions and hypocrisies of liberalism, um, certainly not one just limited to India. Moving on to something that does touch upon the right wing, uh, and I think is important to analyze and discuss is basically how, you know, I've spent countless podcasts vilifying Modi. He keeps winning elections. And so uh, to touch upon that very briefly, I'll turn to Chuang. It's the last time we'll sort of mention them. Um, but in terms of analyzing labor struggles in China, they say that oftentimes they are, and I'm going to jump to a quote here, uh, revindictive in nature meaning that they often seem to make very specific local demands of existing powers, many such incidents that thus operate well within currently acceptable power structures and tend towards negotiation, uh, end quote. Now, my understanding of the BJP is they have sort of the hammer and sort of the ethno-nationalist carrot, where if you are a good Hindu, if, if, they're, if you're not um, lower caste, that you can be sort of a partner in their ethno-nationalist version of, of neoliberal capitalism. This is a huge protest, uh, and, and feel free to push back on any of that in your answer. This is a huge protest, um, 300,000 people. How have we seen sort of the carrot and the stick? Uh, how have we seen the state use sort of a cudgel of police violence, carceral violence to smash these protests? And how have we seen sort of the siren song of Hindutva being used, if at all, to peel off uh, protesters? Yeah, um, this is a, a, another important issue. Um, we, we, we should emphasize that the BJP is a right-wing majoritarian party, um, and it's committed to both Hindutva and neoliberalism. This kind of Hindu supremacy and sort of deregulation and privatization. Um, it has engaged and instigated all sorts of violence in the past, uh, primarily against Muslims, 
um, against Dalits, against Christians. Um, in this situation, however, they are uh, in a difficult predicament um, uh, because this struggle has captured the imagination of the country. It's become a global issue. There have been dozens of rallies in cities across the world. Uh, global leaders have spoken out against it. It's been brought up at the United Nations. Um, but also back in India, there is something primal to the act of cultivation, right? The very people that produce food that feed the country are up in arms, right? The, the kind of Hindi slogan or North Indian slogan of Jai Jawan, Jai Kasan, you know, you know, victory to the Kasan, uh, the farmer. Uh, this is what is getting called into question because, uh, you know, how you treat your farmers, the very people that sustain the country, uh, tells us everything about the, the nature of the government. So in that sense, I think that um, it's been hard or harder for the government to engage in open violence against the protesters. Now, they, the, the BJP-led government in Haryana blocked the routes to Delhi from Punjab, and they had their police and their tear gas canisters and their water cannons and batons. They had all sorts of barriers put up on the roads. They even dug up the national highway. Um, and so we saw a clash on November 26th, huge numbers of people pushing past those obstacles, uh, incredibly heroic. Um, and the police kind of were defeated and had to melt away. Um, when they were coming to Delhi, um, there was actually um, a, a plan by the government to allow them to come into certain designated protest grounds, the Ramlila grounds, or Barari grounds, um, and they were, you know, promised that you know you come in here and you can do your protest. That's fine. And it was the political acuity of the people on the ground and a kind of new generation of leadership that recognized that was a trap, and actually didn't enter into Delhi and go to the kind of places where they could just sort of perform their protest without consequence and be ignored. And they stopped at the arteries, and they actually blocked the the the, the main highways. Um, so here, you know, the BJP would perhaps like to uh, uh, clear them out and use the overwhelming force of the state, but they really are hemmed in by the nature of this protest, how massive it's become, um, and the fact that the world is watching. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. I don't think it's impossible. Uh, they've sent in, uh, they've been, some of these people have been caught, they've sent in infiltrators, um, and they're, you know, obviously hmm. surveilling the situation and, and perhaps hoping something can kind of sort of be used as a pretext to, to engage in wanton violence. But thus far, um, they're really at a loss. Um, in terms of the negotiations, um, the other end of the, the, the sort of spectrum, um, look, they, for since June, the BJP was adamant that they're not going to change a thing that the bills are fine as they are and everybody's just gonna have to live with them, right? That's their kind of strong arm tactic, uh, adamant refusal to negotiate. Um, now, underlying that is real condescension and arrogance, right? Their common refrain is people just don't understand these bills are for their interests. These bills will actually benefit the people. And they, the ministers and the spokespersons keep repeating that line and on the other end, you have hundreds of thousands of people against these bills. And so you're actually saying that, you know, hundreds of thousands, actually millions of people are just dumb. They just don't understand, right? They, they just can't see this. Um, so, so you actually, you know, in a sense, have a kind of colonial mindset of, of these elites just thinking that people have false consciousness and don't know what's in their interests. Um, and that's why the farmers have been so resolute and so articulate uh, and adamant about a full repeal. And that's the only thing worth negotiating. Um, so in a sense, I think the BJP is in a really difficult position because their usual game of dirty tricks has not worked. And um, they are perhaps at a loss as to what to do next. Um, this, I think, will be a short, a very short aside, but... Uh, in thinking through Modi and the violence of the BJP, as well as other sort of neoliberal authoritarian models, Trump, uh, Xi Jinping, Erdogan, uh, Thatcher's words, there is no alternative, 
Um, whereas I think a, a large part of the disgust towards Thatcher was the violence she was willing to unleash uh, to enact uh, her neoliberal policies. That novelty of that violence has worn off and we've become quite habituated. When you look at these protests and, as you've said, sort of the BJP's inflexibility, is there a sense of um, from capitalist allies like Ambani uh, in India or uh, Bezos uh, in the U.S. that part of the doctrine of there is no alternative is that there can be no flexibility on these positions because then we might begin to sort of imagine that we don't have to live this way. Yeah, that's a. I've, I've been thinking a lot about the sort of Margaret Thatcher um, quote actually because I think um, you know the 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 real sort of. Um, power of Margaret Thatcher um, is that everybody mocks her today, but there are so many people that actually think there is no alternative. And so that ideology has kind of infiltrated people's minds and, and progressive, good-natured people, not, not the sort of right-wing ideologues, who they might even support the protest, but they're like, well, you know, agriculture, though, it ought to be kind of shaken up and uh, revitalized and this is the way to do it and it's kind of inevitable so so that that I think that sense um, is in elite circles it's in kind of middle class urban dwellers um, but I think on the ground it is a very different picture and um, the BJP I think um, part of their their the constraint is that uh, they can proclaim to be as determined as they want but they're not invincible. Uh, governments are invincible until they're not. And I think that the ratcheting up of pressure is actually um, eroding their claim to be a kind of populist party. Uh, you can't be populist when huge numbers of people are openly defiant and against this policy. And in very simple terms, that's why it's, it's gone beyond farmers. Um, it's gone beyond laborers you know, small shopkeepers in towns and sort of villages across the country see what these bills will do. Um, you know, lawyers and doctors and, 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 you know, professionals, but like students and teachers, bus drivers. I mean, again, across society, people are seeing what this will do. And so the BJP can kind of instigate people to hate Muslims on the one hand, um, but in this case, they're really not able to, I think, drive that same narrative home. And so they've actually moved off from their position of complete inflexibility and have begun to entertain negotiations and talks. They're still doing all sorts of dissimulation and kind of diversions, but um, that in itself is a victory because they would tolerate no debate on demonetization or Kashmir or the refugee and citizenship laws that they passed. Here, they're actually, they've been forced to the table. And I think it's the gradual uptick in pressure that will force a repeal. When it comes to this question of neoliberalism from below and my understanding globally of how elites try to reshape the psyche of uh, the general populace, uh, service workers, agriculture workers, uh, informal economy and so on. Do you see this as a, uh, in some ways, as a stark rebuttal to um, the gig economy, to the self as an entrepreneur, and as you've alluded to a couple times through the symbolism of these protests, sort of that there is a visceral connection to these people uh, and the land. Do you see this as something that could be valuable for those who are working in uh, uh, Proposition Twenty Two? for example, in California that just passed that basically instituted uh, Uber's uh, model of labor as one that's acceptable to the state. Do you see this sort of mass protest as a refutation of, let's say, the people in favelas who uh, see themselves as entrepreneurs and vote for a Bolsonaro who further impoverishes them? How do you see this, I guess, globally against um, how neoliberalism has been adopted uh, by the global proletariat. Yeah, I think um, sometimes when we're in the midst of a struggle, like the sort of this global neoliberal push, we lose sight of the fact that it also emerged through contingent circumstances, 
uh, it uh, has not been around forever and therefore it will not last forever. Um, so this struggle is a direct challenge to neoliberal capital. Um, you know, companies that are sort of singularly pursuing profit at all costs and have governments on board to enact that vision are being confronted by huge numbers of people that have a radically different understanding of the way they want their lives and their economy to run. Um, you know, the, the, the people there are demanding a new agricultural model, like I said before, that is sustainable, that is equitable, that protects the environment. Um, they've been demanding it for 50 years. And here is an opportunity to not only oppose the government's imposition, but to create something different in its place. Um, and no one is fooled by what the government has tried to do. Um, one of the amazing achievements of this struggle is the fact that the farmer and laborer unions are able to articulate themselves so well in this sort of global media landscape. They have their own Twitter account, their own Facebook page, their own Instagram account, but they also have their own sort of news channel. And a few weeks ago, they actually created their own newspaper. And the newspaper is called Trolley Times. Um, and it takes its name from the trolley, which is hitched on the back of a tractor. It's a kind of humble, utilitarian instrument of, of cultivation that farmers have brought in their thousands to the protest sites and they're actually living and sleeping in their trolleys. Um, so this newspaper was begun to get the word out about these laws and about the struggle to people and circulated sort of on the front lines. So people are actually uh, taking control of the narrative and articulating it in their own terms. And I think that's why the government campaign of disinformation uh, and obfuscation has failed so spectacularly. They call these people you know, too dumb to know their own interests. They call them elites. They call them separatists and Maoists. None of those accusations stuck. Uh, they've all sort of fallen flat. Um, and so that's why I think um, we, what we're seeing is um, an example of something that I think the global left can learn a great deal from, um, that this is actually how one counters neoliberalism. Um, and, you know, we ought to be honest that it is a struggle right? We're not, um, you know, dissecting or doing an autopsy of a movement years later, right? You know, sometimes people have the discussions about what was uh, Occupy Wall Street, right? Uh, now, this is actually happening right now in the midst. The, the movement is, 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 you know, fluid. The dynamics on the ground change every day. But if there is anything to pin hopes on, it is the fact that the struggle is happening. That is our guarantee, not its outcome but the actual possibility of it happening. And um, yeah, I think, you know, across the world, people can learn what it means to engage in direct action meaningfully, articulate your own demands through your own mediums and create a sustainable protest, right? The farmers have said that they have six months of supplies and they're willing to camp out for months, if not years. And it has been sustained. Uh, these are all things that I think uh, you know, especially in America or even elsewhere, we can learn from and build on for the struggles um, in, 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 that we face. A lot of the points you've made in this conversation where you've um, done an outstanding job as a guest, really <laughs> laying out a lot of the points and principles of these protests, something that's really emphasized for me is it sounds like at least at the academic level or perhaps the level where knowledge is disseminated. So uh, thinking of Gramsci, you know, uh, the media or how we accept the state, that what is common knowledge does not sort of have to be that way. And it, it, is there anything you, you could build off of in terms of a lot of the BJP, I think why it's so offensive to me or a Trump or a Macron is this the stupidity and sort of the fascism and picking a marginalized group and further marginalizing them to build your own popularity, building sort of an imaginary enemy um, in terms of Muslims, in terms of immigrants, um, in terms of the poor and the BJP up until this point and why I'm, I'm a bit, I have trepidation of being optimistic is the BJP has been extremely successful uh, up until this point marginalizing Muslims, uh, the migrant crisis, where I, I spoke to the economist John Drez, is incredibly traumatic 
um, in terms of millions of migrants literally having to walk hundreds of kilometers back to their home because uh, the BJP shut down public transportation ostensibly for uh, health security reasons, but some people suggest sort of more nefarious reasons that they just wanted to break the spirits uh, of these people even more. Um, how do you, how do you see this in sort of the larger narrative of how the BJP has won? And then how do you see this as sort of the larger narrative of the sun is set for the time being on the Black Lives Matter uh, uprising, the George Floyd uprising? What, what does this speak to you about India? And, and how do you see this to, to conclude our interview, which has been a lovely experience? How do you see this uh, global lessons uh, that we can take moving forward? Yeah, um, I think those are those are very important points. I think um, the BJP's, um, you know, victories, if you will, um, you know, they, they succeeded in some ways. Um, you know, uh, mobilizing people, uh, polarizing people, spewing this kind of poisoned rhetoric, um, enacting and instigating violence, uh, like we talked about. Um, but I think they've met their match in this. Uh, in this protest. Um, you know, what we're seeing on the front lines, uh, you know, another dimension to it uh, is revolutionary Sikhi in practice. Um, the, the, the fact of, uh, you know, BJP's Hindutva ideology um, has a kind of set plan for Christians and Muslims, but they don't quite know how to deal with Sikhi and Sikhs um, as a community um, and as a kind of religion. Um, you know, what we're seeing on the front lines, uh, especially in November, uh, was um, an, an ideology of confronting one's oppressors, which is what inspired people to be so brave in fighting down water cannons and police barricades. Um, you see principles of seva and langar, which is a sort of collective labor and a sort of community kitchen, which is sustaining people. Uh, you see the embrace of radical equality uh, you know, people from all religions, Muslims, Hindus, uh, you know, atheists, Christians have joined in. Um, so actually in, in, in Sikhi, you actually have a kind of refutation of Hindutva bigotry and divisiveness. And um, I think from there, what we can maybe think about is, you know, nobody has a monopoly on anti-capitalist politics. And I think challenges to capitalism can occur across the world in diverse contexts and ways. Here is a fight against capitalism. It might not look exactly like we've seen in the past. Uh, it might not be kind of revolutionary in the armed struggle, overthrow of the state, abolish private property model, but there is something meaningful happening here. And that's why we ought to pay attention to it. <clears throat> if there are threads that we can build on that I think is part of our duty, you know, people at the front line, front lines are dealing with, with enough as it is. Um, and that's why I think, you know, venues like this podcast are the space where we can kind of think through these larger questions in a more meaningful way. Um, in the global um, sort of scope, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the rebellions that happened over this summer were incredibly inspirational because at a very basic level, they reveal to the world that all is not well and that people are not going to just kind of put up with this routine violence, injustice, um, and outrages, um, and that they're going to find ways to express themselves. And they were sustained and articulate, um, and, and they were also sort of uncontrollable um, and, 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 you know, went in many different directions. And so so, so there is something there that one can kind of see and think through and build on as well. And I know people in the US are doing that work. Um, in, in, in a larger sense, I think what this protest might do is have us re-examine our own expectations and trajectories. I think it forces us to reconsider what we think is possible and the directions of change. Uh, and I think when we start doing that, and take inspiration from what's happening on the ground. Uh, a, you know, a new world is is not only possible, but it's it's coming. And it sounds like you and I are in agreement. Where I, 
I have not read a fucking columnist, sorry for my language, <laughs> uh, in months. I don't really read a lot of academia. It, it really does sound like uh, we're in agreement that change is not going to come from uh, someone in a university or someone sitting within the political system that is on, that is fetid and rotten. It's probably going to come from people in those positions of power turning that power over and aligning themselves with the people on the ground. Um, is, is there any sense of that in India for these protests where we are starting to see extremely powerful people give up some of that institutional security and, and stand naked uh, facing the state um, with these protesters? Uh, you do see some of that. Um, but I think that um, it might be less a matter of the powerful sort of turning because, you know, when now when political leaders are doing it, it it's almost uh, universally seen as a kind of crass opportunism, mm. right? So the Congress and the Akalis and, and other leaders have all sort of come out and denounced uh, the BJP government, but everybody sees right through it because they're also neoliberal parties and given half the chance if they were in power, they do the same thing. And now they're just saying this to kind of save their skin. So I think that, um, you know, the role of kind of intellectuals, uh, it's, 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 it can be helpful, but one shouldn't have any delusions that they are indispensable, right? They can maybe assist, but uh, even without their help, things are going to happen. And I think that um, it will be that popular pressure that um, compels um, change that, that forces uh, those in power to either reconsider their positions or get pushed out of the way. Um, because this is, I think, the kind of flip side to intransigence. The BJP's refusal to engage meaningfully is having the opposite effect. You know, when they're so uh, resolute in saying we're not going to change our ways, that is not cowering people. People are not kind of losing heart and saying, well, they've said it, so therefore it can't be done. People are rising to that challenge. And they're saying, well, you know, we've experienced a lot in our history. We've seen many tyrants come and go, and you're just one in a long list. And uh, we also have determination. We also are resolute. We're also organized and disciplined and thoughtful and creative. And so, now it's a struggle. And uh, with no side backing down, I think that there are incredible possibilities for the future. You, you talked about uh, Sikhi being sort of an undigestible ideology. And that's my last question. I'm just, I'm curious about that. I don't need you to describe that in, at a thesis length, but could you, I've never heard that before. And I would just like you to touch upon that uh, before the, the outro to this this wonderful interview. Yeah, I mean, what I was trying to convey there was um, the difficulty the BJP has with dealing with something that doesn't neatly fit in its bigoted, divisive sort of outlook. So they have a kind of set plan for Christianity and Islam. People are challenging, challenging this on the ground. Uh, it's been sort of contested fully. It's absurd. But nonetheless, they can kind of place those religions in a certain category and work to demonize people uh, of those faiths. Um, they don't know what to do with Sikhi because um, they can't use the same sort of foreign uh, external origin uh, myths that they use with, with Islam and Christianity, but also because um, the practices, uh, 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 you know, and the, the, the ideas of Sikhi, um, the, the, the universal appeal of it, uh, they don't have an answer. Um, and it's kind of captured the imagination of huge numbers of people in India that are Hindu or Muslim or Christian even. Um, when you see the fact that uh, something like langar, which sort of very casually gets translated as a free food, when in fact it's a revolutionary act of unalienated labor, people working together to cook uh, and eat and clean at the same time, uh, it overturns the logic of purity and pollution. It undoes the hierarchy of higher and lower. People sit on the floor uh, and eat together. Um, 
Uh, and it violates all of the kind of social taboos of, of gender, of caste, of, of region and class. Um, and it, that's in a sense how it, 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 it's a kind of negation of Hindutva uh, ideology and presents a kind of new model for how people can live together. Um, and that's just one small sort of element. But people have said that for at the protest sites, um, in addition to sustaining the protesters, huge numbers of people from Delhi and the surrounding areas are getting three meals a day now because of these protesters, mm -hmm. right? That the government has kind of failed its own people, um, that it can't provide food and you know clothing and shelter to large swaths of the population. India is still a largely malnourished and undernourished country. And here uh, are SEC, which are 2% of the population, um, you know, creating institutions like this that are having a, an amazing effect on the ground. So from there to all sorts of other uh, dimensions of Sikhi, I think that it gets put into practice. People get to kind of see it on the ground. They get to see it online. And I think people then can appreciate different ways of being in the world, uh, take inspiration from that. Um, and, and that's why I think people are so hopeful. You know, this, what we've seen is a kind of intertwining of the economic and the cultural. It's not just a purely, you know, uh, a financial challenge to these bills, right? These bills are going to harm everybody's pocketbooks. There's actually a deeper sort of groundswell because there's a cultural religious component to it that I think is what has inspired people but sustain them and gives them the imagination for more. So to conclude, where can people find out more about your work? I discovered you through, uh, I think it was something obscure because I follow these, I try to follow these things as closely as I can, but I, you're also in Al Jazeera. Where can people uh, find your work? And then um, in terms of these protests, is there anything that people on the other side of the world can do to support them? Yeah. Um, so for me, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I think I'm act I guess I'm active on Twitter, just Navyog Gill uh, or at Navyog Gill. Um, um, my writings are, you know, on Al Jazeera. There's a piece I wrote in Outlook magazine in October. Um, there's other things, uh, scholarly work, um, Journal of Asian Studies, uh, Economic and Political Weekly. Um, I wrote something actually about migrant labor and the category labor. Um, so, so the writings are out there. I've given several talks, I guess they're sort of floating around uh, YouTube uh, uh, here and there. Um, I'm in the middle of finishing my book, um, which is going to be about caste, labor, and agrarian politics in colonial Punjab. Um, this obviously occurred, and so I got a little sidetracked, but I'm, I'm just about done the manuscript there. Um, in terms of the, so, so, and then, you know, however people reach out, it's great to kind of interact with your listeners in the future maybe. Um, in terms of uh, what people can do, um, I mean, I think there's things happening in every major city across the world. And I think that everything counts in the sense that um, there are people that are obviously on the front lines directly confronting the state, but there are people that are organizing supplies and logistics. There are people that are donating money. There are people that are having rallies and marches. Uh, there are people that are singing poetry and songs. Uh, and doing artwork. Um, all of it matters. All of it, I think, gives people on the ground um, sort of encouragement. It also adds to the pressure of the Indian government. They don't like any of this happening. And I think um, it's incumbent on, any, on, on each person to kind of see their responsibility and find ways to engage meaningfully to bring about a greater future for for the planet. Uh, I think uh, I'm agreeing with all of that, and uh, I hope that you continue to do interviews. Um, if the I'm I'm sold on the book, and I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what writing comes next because this was a very absolute pleasure. Well, thank you so much, Matt, and um, I salute you for for taking up this issue and expressing so much interest and having such capacious questions. And um, thanks to all your listeners.